1 Kings chapter 17. I hope this is helpful this morning. It, I got to run through this quick. There's a lot of scripture here. But I want to show you the characteristics of a poverty spirit. First thing I want you to know is it's not about how much money you have. You can be rich and have a poverty spirit. You can make a nice income and have a poverty spirit. You can be poor and have a poverty spirit. So it's not about money. It's the way you think. It's the way you behave. As a man thinks, so is he, God says, right? I'm just quoting the Bible. So I'm not arguing with God. That thinking can be controlled by a wrong spirit, and we've all been impacted by people or circumstances in our lives. So we want to look at some of the characteristics of a poverty spirit, and then at the end, if you recognize any of them, we're going to break them. We're going to have the power through Christ to make that confession of God's Word and break that curse off of our lives so we can be fruitful and productive. So let me read a lengthy passage, 1 Kings 17, the first 24 verses. Now Elijah the Tishbite said to King Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, there will neither be rain nor dew for the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, go east, hide in the Kareth Ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I've directed ravens to supply you with food. So he did what God told him to do. He went to Kareth Ravine east of Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in San Antonio. Yeah. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was gathering sticks. He called out to her and said, would you please bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called out, and please bring me a piece of bread. She said, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Just a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my boy so we can eat it and die. She's a real optimist, folks. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf of bread from what you have. Not from what you don't have, from what you have. And bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Your jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Elijah. Sometime later, the son of this woman grew ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin, kill my boy? Give me your son, Elijah said. He took him from her arms, carried him to his upper room, and laid him on a bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow that I'm staying with by allowing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to God, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him downstairs, and gave him to his mother and says, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. 
Sometimes we don't know what's governing what we say or what we think. Sometimes it's because of the way we were raised or certain people or leaders that affected us or a terrible experience in the past. My grandparents who raised me through high school came through the Great Depression where they lost everything with about everybody else. But in their old age, they got it all back and lived a very prosperous life. Well, I was living with them, but that spirit on them, that poverty mentality, though they had land and abundance and orchards and raised peaches and did all kinds of stuff, still affected what they think. It so affected them, as a 70-year-old man, I can still hear my grandfather's words to me. Ricky, shut the door. Don't let the heat out. Cut the lights off. Ricky, shut the door. Don't let the heat out. Cut the lights on. Although my grandfather could write a check and pay any electric bill that came in, he still had, I might not have enough, poverty mentality. Although, and he was a giving, tithing, good man. So I'm trying to show you this is not about how much money you earn. It's about the way you think. When I got my very first house, Cindy, I got our first house. We moved in in December. We owned it. I opened the two French front doors cut all four heat pumps on and stood there with every light in the house on, just stood there. I said, I am not going to live with that small, barely enough mentality, even though I'm in the ministry, it ain't going to happen to me. I, my, that, that war is right here. So I kept, I shut them. I don't believe God intended for me to be wasteful. I'm just saying I'm going to overcome that whole idea that I'm afraid I might let some heat out or the light on. And then I got married and had girls and the lights never go off, never. There's always something left on. But anyway, that's a poverty mentality and a spirit. A poverty spirit can affect an entire community, a whole culture, and groups of people. And they all tend to believe and behave the same way. It's amazing. A poverty spirit means lack of money or resources, scarcity, inferiority, or poorness. To impoverish means to cause to become poor to exhaust the natural strength or fertility of impoverished soil. So, you prevent something from becoming fruitful. If soil is impoverished, it no longer has the capacity to produce the fruit it was designed to. So, if you're living governed by a poverty spirit, you're no longer producing the fruit from your life that God designed you for. Remember that God told Adam and his wife, be fruitful and multiply. Remember that? In the book of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply. The Creator God, first words, be fruitful, multiply. He didn't say hang in there, bump along, survive, break even. Well, that was Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. That was the first Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. And John 15, 8 said, my Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. Would you please read the Bible? I don't read survive, bump along, hang in there, okay, okay is like kissing your sister. God said, my Father is glorified when you, the human being I created, in agreement with my plan and purpose, you bear much fruit. So you don't have to pray about should my business grow, should my class grow, should my life grow, should my marriage grow. God says, I want it to bear much fruit. And that's a good thing. Agree with God. Quit listening to your neighbor or your mother-in-law or somebody else. Listen to what God says. Now, let me give you quickly characteristics of a poverty spirit and see if some of these are in you so at the end we can break them. First, 
a deep-rooted sense of inferiority. Now, it's not a fact, but it's a feeling you have. It's indicative of lack of affirmation in your life growing up. And it's linked potentially to judgments made over that person by family or relational authority. You'll never be anything. You'll never have anything. You'll never amount to anything. That's a lie, but it's a perceived inadequacy, inferiority. That's a poverty spirit. God doesn't make anybody inferior. Number two, perceived inadequacy. I cannot see myself as a resource to help anybody else beyond myself. It's all about me. So I can't give, I can't love, I can't communicate, I can't build relationships, I can't serve. I don't feel I have the resources to do it. I'm inadequate. Three, lack of money. It's a restricted ability to advance materially. There are people, no matter what you give them, no matter what they touch, no matter what opportunities are presented, they're unable to get ahead financially. They're always a day late and a dollar short. They never get ahead, no matter what you put in their hand. May I tell you that is a curse. That is not the will of God. That is bizarre. That's not even natural. Number four, a hoarding mentality. You're driven to accumulate more than you need in the present for fear you'll have lack in the future. Now, that's not linked to a retirement plan or having as a savings account. That's wisdom. But hoarding is extreme, and it's driven by fear. And again, you can be poor, you can be middle class, you can be wealthy and have that spirit, that fear that I, my grandmother wouldn't throw anything away. Nothing. I mean, your kids are not going to take your stuff, believe me, when you die. They're going to throw it in the trash. So you might as well give it to goodwill or give it to somebody who can use. And one of my, one of my designers in, in Italy said, if you don't wear something in a whole year, you're not going to wear it. I don't care if it costs a thousand bucks, you're not going to wear it in a whole year. Give it away. Give it away. Help somebody else have a great life with something that's beautiful, very little worn, and of great value to them. It served its purpose for you. And even men, if you look in your closet, you, you got shirts and pants and, uh, well, suits less and less, but you've got stuff. And it's amazing what gets pushed back as you get new stuff and you don't wear it. So once a year, I come in and dump a truckload of Tommy Bahama shirts and pants and shoes and tennis shoes and stuff that I'm just not wearing now because I got something else to put in its place. So rather than just keep it, give it away. Some, find somebody you'll fit. For a couple of you, that'd be hard to do, but, but try. If, if you can't find anybody that'll fit it, then give it to goodwill, and it's part of your giving as a life. There's always more. But if you're hoarding stuff, you can't let it go. You can't put it to good use. That's a poverty spirit. That's not healthy. Number five, insecurity regarding the future. That's a sign of a poverty spirit. Insecurity regarding the future. There's always anxiety, no matter how favorable circumstances are at the moment, because I fear what's going to happen in the future. You know, the fear that something's going to go wrong, something's going to go wrong. So I'm always afraid, well, things may get worse, things may get worse. They, it, it, God doesn't want you, He says He's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a well-disciplined mind. So don't, what are you afraid of? God's still there in the future. He's the eternal I am. He will always be. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
So I, am I a doomsday prepper? Heck no. Am I worried about, well, you think the earth's going to end tomorrow or this week? Nope. They said it was going to end in 1944. And every year of my life growing up, every prophecy teacher says, well, look at the paper there. This is prophecy being fulfilled. Surely the Lord will come. Now I've already grown two kids, one marriage, two through college, and, and one pending. And I'm thinking, holy Moses, I don't think they knew what they're talking about. If I were to listen to that, well, we're leaving any time. I wouldn't save for a college education or a wedding for the children. You wouldn't expand your business because you're, you're thinking escape rather than occupy. God told us to build. God says, occupy till I come. And everybody else is trying to create rapture hysteria. I think the Lord will return one day, but I ain't got a clue when, but I better be busy when he shows up. And so I'm building, I'm planning for the future. I'm not going to live with rapture hysteria. God's a God of time. And you know, and he said, it's not for you to know. Here, get filled with my spirit and get out and spread good news in the world and take over. And so, I, I've never been, con you watch the news, well, the stock market was up today, Ed, 10 points, but, but will it last? Anytime there's good news, but will it last? Well, fudge, who knows? <laughs> what God told about me will last forever. I'm not under that kingdom. I have a separate kingdom I live in. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have, we have uh, two kingdoms uh, diametrically opposed side by side, and I'm a citizen of two countries, of two kingdoms. I'm a citizen of the United States of America by birthright, but I'm also a citizen of the kingdom of God by birthright being born again in Jesus, and that's the highest rule, law in the world. God says of my kingdom, there will never be an end. Our kingdom, our governments come down all the time, but of His kingdom there shall be no end. So what is my problem being afraid of the future? Bring on the Antichrist. Some of you probably married him. I don't know, but bring it on. So what? What are you afraid of? Number six, hopelessness. May I say that word does not exist in your Bible. Faith is the message of hope. It gives you something to expect and something to hope for. And the more entrenched the poverty spirit is, the more limited the capacity to view the future optimistically. You feel like, well, it probably won't last. I failed once in my past, I'll probably fail again. Here's what God says, I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. So there are no hopeless people in this room. There are no hopeless circumstances in this room. It may be deep yogurt for you at the moment, but not God. I've connected my life to Him. He will care for me. He gives me wisdom, certain things I can do, certain things I can't do, but He promises He will. But He gives me a hope and a future. If you could see the future God has for you, it'd be so bright you'd be wearing sunglasses this morning. Well, I live and I believe this. There's always hope for you folks, even if you've been dead four days like Lazarus. In God's kingdom, there's always hope. I don't believe in hopelessness. What are we going to do? Well, first thing, I want to shut your mouth. That's a big step forward. Number seven, a victim mentality. I watched Oprah several years ago when Dr. Phil was on, and they were interviewing a lady, and she said to Dr. Phil, uh, sitting on the couch, I've been in an abusive relationship uh, for 15 years. And Dr. Phil paused for a moment, looked at her, and says, Madam, with all compassion for your circumstances, you're not a victim. He said, when you were abused the first time, you were a victim. But after 15 years, you're a volunteer. 
And I want to tell you, you are not a victim in the kingdom of God. You are more than a conqueror. And God doesn't have any victims. The victim mentality says, it's not my fault. I'm not responsible. It's not my choice. I don't have to do anything. Somebody else must solve my problem. The city council, the government, the president, my mother, my daddy, somebody else owes me. I'm a victim. No, you are responsible for your life. And it will never change unless you believe that you are subject to the choices that you make. You can choose yes, you can choose no. And your life is the product of the choices that you've made, and you know it. So don't blame other people. Refuse to be a victim and say, I will arise in the strength of Christ, and I will overcome. I will no longer be a victim anymore because in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing. Number eight, self-centeredness. You could also add selfish, self-pity, self-conscious. It's all about me. But the kingdom of God is about others. The Son of Man didn't come to be applauded, clapped for, entertained. He said, I came to serve and give my life for others. And so this self-centeredness is the inability to give materially, emotionally, or spiritually. Addicts are the ultimate self-centered people. They have an inability to give to anybody outside of themselves. They see all of life revolving just around them. They have no world outside of their own, self-centered. Number nine, you know, I was just thinking one of, our, one of our guys, one of the bravest men I know, Bill Morris, retired military, battled cancer, stomach cancer, got, a, got victory over it for, for a number of years. It came back, very aggressive. You'll see him stand at the door, greet you, smile with you. He's lost a great deal of wealth. And he was rushed to the hospital last night over at Bamsey, and I, was, I just got the message from him. And they thought he had a stroke, but thank God he didn't have a stroke. They, because of the chemo, it affected the nerves and it gave a false symptom. So, so Bill's back home. I was on my way to go over there. And I thought many times, uh, you know, how I, you can get in, enthralled with your problem and your issues. And I thought, here's somebody fighting for their life in a non-curable disease, and how blessed and fortunate I am shutting my mouth complaining about anything. And all I could think about was, I hope I can make his day good. I hope, hope I can know how much I value his servanthood here. He's an Afri African-American man, and I'm proud of him and his, his service to our nation, and the fact that he serves the kingdom of God. And I've never heard him complain once in my whole life, never, not one time. He's just a great guy. But I thought how fortunate I am and you are to have health and, and have a good life. And when you see how other people are doing and the problems they carry and how well they serve and give, it ought to be a slap in the face for some to say, I need to get out of myself and you look at other people. Number nine, there's generational transfer of attitudes and expectation. It's amazing how certain thinking patterns continue in families for generations. Exodus 34, 7 says, God says, I will punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. But thank God in the new covenant through Christ, that curse is broken, and you don't have to allow those same conditions to persist. My father was divorced and remarried five times. I don't have to have that follow me. I broke that curse off myself when I learned to have the power through Jesus to break that curse. 
a curse of disease, a curse of poverty, a curse of, uh, of divorce or premature death. I am not subject to that through Christ. And now that I know it, I break that curse as we'll do in a few moments. So how about you? What have you inherited from your families? Well, daddy never could handle money. They never had any money. Daddy was an alcoholic. His uncle was an alcoholic. So you'll be an alcoholic, huh? Unless you say, I won't be. I will be who God has made me to be, and I'm not subject to that curse, and I know it. So you can never convince me I should be. I won't be. So that curse is broken. Abraham Lincoln wasn't great because he was born in a log cabin. He was great because he got out of it and got in the White House. Hello, somebody. How about a good amen? And number 10, characteristic of a poverty spirit, a rationalism for inappropriate behavior a rationalism for inappropriate behavior. Always an excuse why you do things wrong. Always. Never, never your fault. Have you ever thought about Saul and David? <laughs> Saul was not as bad as David. Saul didn't commit adultery. Saul just refused to obey God because he said, I was afraid of the people, so I didn't obey you, Lord. David committed adultery got a girl pregnant named Bathsheba, tried to figure out how to cover it up, called Uriah, the husband, home from battle, gave him wine and food and said, go home and have fun with your wife, then he'll think her pregnancy is him. And the guy wouldn't even go home to his wife while the battle was raging. He slept on King David's porch. David is going nuts. This guy is shaming me. And finally, David has him murdered. Don't you love David? <laughs> this is to help somebody feeling low today. But what was the difference? Here's what Saul said when confronted by God. He said, the people made me. I was afraid. And God rejected him. Here's what David said when confronted. I'm the man. He didn't say, look, Bathsheba's coming on to me. She's been coming on to me all week. She knew I'm up here. I got a lot of stress going. Can we be real? David said, I'm the guy, full responsibility. And God said David was the greatest king he ever had and compared every king of Israel after to how he compared to David, who had a heart for God. Not a perfect man, but never blamed anybody else. There's something to that, folks. Who are you blaming? Who are you blaming for your bad behavior? Who are you rationalizing that with? Behavior only changes when we take responsibility for our lives. Now, let's look at the cure for a poverty spirit. Uh, I want to show Elijah first and contrast him to the way the widow thinks. The widow is a type of a poverty spirit. Elijah is a type of the way God thinks. So looking at Elijah in James 5, verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man just like us. He put on his pants just like you. We tend to think these Bible heroes are beyond us, but Elijah didn't change clothes in a phone booth and come out Superman. God says, nope, he was just a normal guy like you. He knew what it was to wake up and not feel good in the morning. He knew fatigue. He knew depression. He knew discouragement, and he knew rejection. He was a man just like us, but he prayed earnestly it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. So Elijah knew God and accordingly performed some pretty great exploits. The qualification to do those exploits, just a good intimacy with God, good fellowship, walking humbly with his God was the basis for doing extraordinary things. God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people who trust him, who walk with him. And so for Elijah, there was always going to be sufficiency 
regardless of how it came. The Lord was ultimately his resource. So Elijah didn't care how it came. He just knew the supply was going to come. My God will supply all my needs. It may come ugly. It may come beautiful, but it will come. Some of us get into difficulty, and we want God to supply our need in a certain way. And if it's not by a Red Sea opening experience, well, it's not God. But to Elijah, his source was God, and how God supplied it was entirely up to him. You know what? I've just learned he will supply. Take it the way God gives it. Well, I'm not going to take help. I remember when a racetrack guy gave a million dollars to Oral Roberts. Anybody remember that? Whoa, the media exploded. He took a million dollars for the college uh, or our university from a, a gambling racetrack owner, and he put it into the kingdom. Well, Rick, would you take that million dollars? Get a piece of paper and vote what you think. In a New York minute, I'll take the devil's money any day and use it for the glory of God. The devil takes your money. You don't get mad. Of course I would take it. How stupid. It wasn't put to bad. Money is intangible. Money doesn't have morality. Money is just paper. Money manifests the character of the person who has it. If I'm a thief, if I'm a cheat, if I'm a drug addict, if I'm a pimp, if I'm a hooker, that money isn't, and I drop it and somebody picks it up, that money ain't going to make you a hooker. That money's not going to make you a drug addict. That money's just going to manifest what you are. And if that, that has on an occasion fallen into my hands, somebody has pressed it into my palm, walking out, and I look for somebody I think has need, and I walk up and shake their hand and pass it on. I stood in Buenos Aires, Argentina, 15 years ago, doing an outdoor soccer stadium crusade. The host pastor that invited me down there, when he took the offering, stood up and said, and looked at me, and he said, Pastor Rick, do you know where I got this watch? And he held up this very nice watch. I never met this guy in my whole life. I don't even know him. Nope. He said, a certain person in the ministry gave it to me. It was your watch. My watch went around the world down to Argentina and was still bringing joy, and I had no clue. It was just a seed. I sowed it, and it went out. It went on. An incredibly generous couple from our church did something wonderful for me that I could never do for myself, and I could almost cry. I mean, I've never had anything happen where somebody did something like that. But you never know where these seeds go. And uh, how many of you were at my birthday party and saw I had a car on stage here, a sports car? You remember that? It was a gift. Oh, by the way, that was not Summit money. I didn't steal church money. That were my friends around the world that bought that for me and gave it on my, I had to wait 70 years for it, but, but and, and, and it, was, it, it, was, it was seven years old, but I was tickled. And then the Lord did something even bigger than I could imagine and got me a brand new one. Yeah, that's what I said, wow. But you know what my first thought was? My first thought was, oh my God, people will say I'm stealing money from the church if I drive this. But I didn't. It was a gift. But I thought about, well, let me put something in circulation. I could never do that. So I just took the car that was up here, took it over to the dealer. They gave us almost 30 grand for it, and I gave every penny to Summit. It's already been done. It's just seed. It's continuing to multiply, not only from that couple, but the seed. It continues to enrich 
the kingdom of God. Don't live stingy. And by the way, that was my car. I could have kept every dime of it. And some of you would. But I believe my God's got big plans for our future, for my life, for you, for this church. And I don't believe He's limited. And so God meets needs in strange ways. I've watched ministers refuse to get a secular job when their ministry wasn't productive and lose their home and sometimes a family. But St. Paul made tents. He wasn't too proud to work for his living. Pride. If a man won't work, Paul said, he should not eat. If you've got a 27-year-old boy living in your house and you're paying his bills, he's eating your food, you need to take a size 12 shoe and put it where some soft tissue is, and you need to put him out on the front porch. Now, I'm not talking about somebody mentally ill or handicapped or in some way in, in, impugned. I'm talking about a healthy, a healthy man. And God says, in my kingdom, if he won't work, he won't eat. I made you to be productive. Work is good. Work is godly. And you ought to be fruitful and productive. And you're not representing me when you do it. And parents, you're enabling the kid when you keep funding that kind of behavior. You need to, you, I don't think you ever stop loving your kid. I wouldn't. But I'm not going to fund a, a grown man if he's not going to put himself under the discipline. I said, I will do this, but you must do this. Now, that's appropriate, Right. And some of you women, we've had women in this church, marry a guy, he won't work. He stays home, she goes to work. I'm thinking, what's wrong with you, girl? <laughs> I don't want to be lonely tonight. Get a dog. Are you kidding me? You married one? Get rid of that sucker. Why, you still got a little chassis left and some hormones left? Come on, baby. Put this dog out to pasture. Get rid of him. God doesn't want you to live that way. Waste your beauty and youth on a loser. Are you kidding me? He won't work. Then he doesn't support you. Then he refuses to take responsibility. Then you're not under his authority. When you're given authority, you carry responsibility. If you have no responsibility, you do not have authority. So if he will not pay the bills, if he will not come home, if he will not work, you are not subject to his authority. You're free, girl. You're free. So don't live this way. You don't work, you don't eat. So Elijah knew the Lord was his ultimate resource. In 1 Kings 17, verse 4, drink from the brook, eat what the ravens bring you. By the way, ravens are unclean birds. God will supply your need in some strange ways. Don't worry about it. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Just say thank you. He said, I've commanded them to bring you food. It wasn't five-star dining, but in a drought, in a depression, in a recession, when there's nothing out there, water and flesh from a dirty bird would meet his need. It wasn't a massive deliverance, but it sustained him. And God will see that you have enough, even during a tough time. Won't be five-star, but you'll live. You will not die. God will not forsake you. It says, then the brook dried up. But after a while, the brook dried up, and there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. When one season ends, it creates opportunity for God to speak again. So it says in verse 2, then the Lord spoke to Elijah. See, when things run dry and you're obeying God, it might be God trying to get you to move. What if God's means of supplying your need is to get you out of Texas? Perish the thought, but what if? What if God wants you to launch your own business? Are you open? Chances are you'd never leave your comfort zone unless God dried up your current resources. 
You know, somebody giving you a check every two weeks can make you lazy and complacent. Now, that's not bad unless God has bigger plans for you. He may see that you've got entrepreneurial skills you haven't even recognized. So, don't keep whipping a dead horse. Dismount. That dead horse ain't going to take you anywhere. Get a new horse. The disciples fished all night and caught nothing. Jesus showed up and says, throw your nets on the other side. What? But when they obeyed, they got a net-breaking boat sinking catch. And maybe it's time for some of you in whatever your calling or career to cast your net somewhere else. The end of one season created opportunity for another. The word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath. And so he did. But a poverty spirit will always allow you to see disaster, not opportunity. Well, we might as well die. I don't know how we'll recover. What are we going to do? I guess this is the end. God must be judging us. That's a poverty spirit. I'm telling you, we've had men walk out on a girl in here uh, many times, right up to the engagement date, and then leave. You can imagine the heartbreak. You can imagine the expense, because daddies have to pay for the wedding of a girl. I don't know who invented that, but I'd like to slap them. In, it, it didn't come out of the Bible, okay? It didn't come out of the Bible. And then, and then leave them. And the hardest thing to do is to sit down and convince somebody, God loves you. You've given your life to Him. He's dedicated to you. He says, I will do you good. You're going to look back one day and say, my God, thank you for what He's got for you. You must not have this poverty, fatalistic, oh, my life is ruined. My life is over. I'll never live again. If He leaves me, I'll die. Well, where are all the dead bodies? No. It's a, it's a, it's a new opportunity. You got laid off. God's got better plans for you. Think with an abundant mindset. Quit thinking with a poverty mindset. Elijah's new support, su source of supply was very unusual. He's commanded a widow to provide for him. We refuse to recognize new or alternate means of supply. So it could be a new career opportunity, completely foreign to your thinking, and a new location. Maybe the Lord wants you to learn a new skill. Maybe go back to school. Eric Monkey, who's on our elder board, who uh, works with uh, Spa Glass as one of their project managers, has an engineering degree from A&M. But when I knew him, he worked in our maintenance department, and I knew nothing about his past. And he was in my yard fixing my sprinkler in a rain on a night about 10 o'clock because I didn't know how to fix it. And I said, Eric, show me how to fix this sprinkler so I don't have to call you. Okay. You know, Eric has such a sweet spirit about him. We got out in the mud. I'm holding the flashlight. He's showing me. Now, these four screws go to the diaphragm, and then you move the diaphragm. And I said, poo on this. I said, I'm calling you. I ain't fixing this. I ain't got, I'm not doing this. And make a long story short, I find out he's just two semesters short of a degree in engineering at A&M. And I thought, and you're in my yard fixing my sprinkler, and you have the capacity and all but a semester or two to get an engineering degree. And I hate to lose you, but you're going back to school. We helped fund a little bit, got him started. He couldn't live as well as he was living, but he went back, got his degree, got his full certification, got a great job, and now 
got a great wife with Nikki who came here from South Africa. At no, she, she started working in this church for no money, just showed up and wanted to serve. Then she got a stipend. She was so good. Then she got a salary. She just worked her way. And I said, you are not marrying this guy unless he goes back and gets that degree. He's going to live bigger. Now, if, if your technical expertise is repairing those sprinklers, that's a good thing. But his was bigger than that. And I wasn't going to let him marry her until he finished, because I'm going to do the wedding. And he did. And now they got a home. They've got 20 children. They, he's, he's just the greatest guy I know. And he had to back up to go forward. You may also have to subject yourself to welfare, unemployment, but just temporary for God to use it to help you bridge a time of drought while you're getting equipped for a bigger future. That's okay. You're not going to live on it, but it could supply your need temporarily. Now, last, let's look at the widow. She's got the poverty spirit. Number one, she never saw herself as a resource. She says, I don't have a single piece of bread. The poverty spirit makes us focus on what we don't have instead of what we had. She had a cruise of oil and a bin of flour. She had something. And God must have spoken to her. He told Elijah, I've commanded a widow to sustain you, but she's acting like I got nothing. Second, she wanted to hold on to what she had. She said in verse 12, I want to prepare it for myself and my son. Here we go, hoarding, characteristic of a poverty spirit. And regardless of present sufficiency, there's a drive to hoard to accumulate and prevent future lack in the future. That compulsion of hoarding is rooted in fear, not faith. So, fear means there's seldom peace in the present because of fear of the future, which eliminates your capacity to be generous or to give. And if you do give, it's probably under guilt rather than joyful. Number three, the widow had no expectancy for the future, none. Verse 12, we're going to eat it and die. Her life is characterized by hopelessness. In spite of the fact the prophet told her your bin of flour is not going to go empty and your cup of oil is not going to run dry. But when difficulties come, she reverted back to her old pattern of thinking. You've come to punish me. I must have done something wrong. God's judging me now. I knew it wouldn't last. When bad things happen to good people, you're not being judged. You're being attacked. So you fight back. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, he was judged for everything you've ever done or will do. It was laid on him on the cross. He never judges a believer. He might give you a spanking. That ain't judgment. If my daughter breaks your car window and the, the judgment's $350, $400, I might spank her behind for being careless out there. That's chastisement. Judgment, 400 bucks. Well, she hadn't got it. I got it. I got to pay. So Jesus paid my judgment. But it is interesting when you have a poverty spirit and suddenly a robber breaks in, steals from your house, or suddenly there's a layoff, then immediately or the doctor says, well, we're not sure. This might be malignant, blah, blah, blah. We're thinking, oh, God's judging me. I must have done something wrong. I knew it wouldn't last. Why do you think that way? I'm thinking, no, no, no. This recession is not going to get me. It's not going to get us. We're going to fight back. My God shall supply all my need. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the power of my right hand. I'm going to use the word of God, and you're just going to run your mouth. And I'm going to fight back with a sword because God's plan for me is to do me good and not evil. But when you have a poverty mentality, God must not love us. The baby was born with a problem. Got nothing to do with you. Got nothing to do with you. We'll get through this thing. 
And so she says, I know it wouldn't last. And so that's the way a poverty mentality thinks. Hopelessness in spite of living with the miraculous. So what do we have to do? Renew your mind. Change the way you think. Build a life of faith, cultivate it, and eliminate the possibility of returning to old ways should hardship return. So conclusion, three things. Number one, you got to expose fear. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Things may look bad for the moment, but don't be afraid. Don't let hopelessness overcome you. God is your provider. Never, ever bow to fear. Number two, cultivate patterns of giving rooted in faith, not fear. Verse 13, the prophet said, make me a small cake first. Give from what you have, not from what you think you might need in order to give safely. Kingdom giving is rooted in the conviction that God is my provider and always will be. So I give to Him first. The faith connection to giving breaks the poverty spirit. I don't want anything to have its clutches on me, whether it's cars or homes or land or jewelry. I am so grateful, but I know my, supply, my source is God. You figure after 70 years you'd learn something. I've learned I can trust Him. And I've had bad news come to us. We've had everything stolen we own just about. But I never let my wife say, oh, Ricky's gone into a fetal position, sucking his thumb, drinking Maalox, whining, asking for a marijuana joint. (laughs) Most of the people that even worked with me had no clue. I just said, honey, I don't know. I just know God will supply our need. We'll get through this. Everything's going to be all right. Ask her if that's not the way I've responded to everything that's ever happened to us. I'm never going to bow down in fear to the enemy. I don't care if you're standing in. I remember one of my mentors said to me uh, in a very hostile country, he says, the enemy's weapon against you is to kill you. But my weapon against you is I'm willing to die. That takes all the fun out of it, doesn't it? It says they love not their lives unto the death. What do you do with someone like that? You can't do anything with them. They're totally unafraid of you. And I'm telling you, the biggest fear you need to whip is fear. Fear you won't have enough. You won't be in enough. God won't come through. God won't do it for you. And yet He tells you in the Bible, test me. See if I won't pour out blessing on you. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord. I do not change. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you turned away from my words and you haven't kept them. Return to me. I'll return to you. But you ask, how will we return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you say, well, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. So you're under a curse because you rob me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there's food or provision in my house. And you can test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I won't bless you with so much there won't be room to store it. I will prevent pests. This is an agrarian economy. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field. They won't drop their fruit before they're ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You know, if you're living with a poverty spirit, do something costly. I'm I'm tempted to give the name, but perhaps I, I don't know if it's permissible. But he's an actor in Hollywood, used to be a member of our church, went on to do a a great TV series, and then later in life got a long-term series that was filmed in Canada. But he was a member of a church in Malibu where I preached quite frequently, and a lot of actors and entertainers were there. But he went, he was struggling to get a part. Because, you know, once, a, once your series is up, you got to get a new part, get a cash flow going. 
And they had offered him a part at a very low price. So he went by the pastor's office and wrote a check for $40,000, and then that was way above his tithe. It was a sacrificial gift. But he said, I'm going to sow into this thing to break loose something. No sooner had he left the office, and he told me this firsthand, I got a call on my cell phone, and it's my manager. And my manager said, hey, guess what? You know the contract we just turned down? They just doubled the price. He accepted it, flew on to Canada, and that series ran for several years. Number three, understand your past is not your future unless you allow it to be. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things have become new. Here's what I'd like to do before we close. If any of those characteristics of a poverty spirit are identifiable in your life, one or more, let's break them. And I'd like you to stand to your feet, if that's you, and we're gonna, I'm going to lead you in a confession. Jesus is the high priest of our confession, just like we did with healing and health. Now we're going to do it over this poverty spirit. Remember, it's not money. It's the way we think. It's our attitude. And we're going to break the power of it through Jesus to dominate and control our lives because God wants us to be fruitful and productive. So if you see one or more in there, stand up with me, and we're going we're to make a powerful confession together. Say with me, Heavenly Father, because of Christ in my life, you have given me authority to bind Satan and release blessing. Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I bind spirits of poverty, lack, and debt. I forbid you to operate in my spirit, in my mind and body, in my marriage, in my business, or in my finances. I declare you bound in Jesus' name. I release prosperity, fruitfulness, and productivity to work in my mind, my thinking, my body, my marriage, my business, my finances, and my relationships in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. You've blessed me with all blessings of Christ Jesus. I am blessed going out. I am blessed coming in. Every good thing I put my hand to is blessed and favored of God. I do not run after these blessings. These blessings are running after me and overtaking me. You have made me the head and not the tail. My enemies come one way, they flee seven ways. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, you are well able to make all grace and every favor come to my life in great abundance so that there is always, in all circumstances, more than enough to support and furnish every good work and charitable deduction. So I thank you, Lord. This curse is broken. I have the mind of Christ. Your word dwells in me richly. And I choose to be fruitful and productive and to bear much fruit in Jesus' name. Now somebody shout amen. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. 
For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.